This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Well, I'm back in Washington, D.C., and I'm just about to turn the corner where I'll see the building I'm heading towards. And it's a good thing because it looks like it's going to rain at any moment. Uh, while we're walking here, though, I wanted to ask, have you ever wondered where some biologists get the money to work on their research projects? Well, one of the places is the National Science Foundation, which is the building I'm heading towards. And we actually call it by its initials, NSF. Today I'm going to visit with one of the people that oversees the biology area at NSF. This means he watches over the type of science projects that get money, as well as he looks into what things we should be exploring in the future. By the way, do you know where NSF gets their money? They get it from us. That's right. Part of our taxes are invested in NSF, which then invests in the research of scientists, including biologists. And since this is part of where our taxes go, I thought it'd be worthwhile to find out just what's going on here and what we can expect in the future. Okay, we're at NSF. It's about time because it's getting to be a little bit rainy right now. It's a beautiful building. And we're going to go on inside. Wow, what a building. Good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. Yourself? I'm doing great. I'm here to meet with Dr. James Collins. He's the assistant director for the director of the biological division at NSF. Okay. Only thing I need from you is your last name and a photo ID. Okay, that would be biology. Dr. Biology. Dr. Biology. You'll be in room 630. That's the sixth floor, elevators to the right. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. So let's head on up to the office. Well, I get off the elevator, and I have to say I'm rather surprised. It looks more like a gallery here, a photo gallery of some rather amazing artwork than uh, thinking about some kind of a government office. Uh, most of these images I can see are of biological type, um, yeah, biological subjects. It looks like we could be in for a really interesting interview. So I'm in the office with uh, Dr. James Collins. You have quite a title, you know, let's see here. The Assistant Director for the Director of the Biological Division of NSF. Now, that means we must be really close to Washington, D.C. We are really close to Washington, D.C. Arlington is just across the river from the District of Columbia, which is where the uh, White House is and the Capitol. We're looking out the window, and I see from your office the Nature Conservancy. Quite a view, actually, here, isn't it? It's spectacular. Is there something else I'm not seeing out there? Well, the Nature Conservancy is the one that's easiest to see. Then the Fish and Wildlife Service is just down the block, and the National Science Foundation is here. So there's a cluster of science-related activities that happen out here in the Arlington area. Now, a lot of people hear NSF, but they probably think, well, it's the National Science Foundation, it's a bunch of scientists. What are you doing at NSF? You're right. NSF is the acronym for the National Science Foundation. It is an institution within the federal government of the United States that has a very distinctive role 
in supporting basic research. So we have uh, 600 plus scientists who are on staff here at the National Science Foundation, but we don't do the actual research here at NSF. We are a place where the Congress appropriates funds and we make research awards to investigators primarily at uh, universities and colleges across the United States, and they actually do the research. Well, we're talking about uh, giving out money, actually awarding money. Um, what is the budget for NSF? The NSF budget this year is just over $6 billion. $6 billion. And you have one section. You're in the biology section, which makes sense for this podcast, right? What do you oversee? How much money? Slightly more than $600 million. $600 million. Now, you said it mainly goes to institutions, universities, research institutes. Are there other areas that NSF invests in that people would think of or may not think of as an important role? We fund field stations, for example, and marine labs. We fund research collections at museums, and those are the sorts of things that individuals might not ordinarily think about and connect them with the National Science Foundation. We also um, fund the uh, living stock collections, things like Drosophila, which is a, a small fly that's used by investigators for research. You also have a section that does a lot with education, and if I'm not mistaken, when I watch some of the shows on PBS, I see funds by NSF. That's right. There's a whole directorate called Education and Human Resources, and they fund programs associated with research and education, again, often at uh, universities and colleges across the country, but they also fund so-called informal education programs, and that's probably what you have in mind in terms of things associated with NOVA, for example. What do you like about NSF? We have a lot of very smart people here who are really dedicated to what they do. They take very, very seriously the fact that they are stewards of the funding that supports the basic research throughout the United States. It, this is the premier institution for supporting basic research across a wide variety of the sciences and engineering and education, which provides a great opportunity for integrative, interdisciplinary studies. NSF has a lot of cool things. All right. So let's think of one that you can mention that's for kids and maybe teachers. So one of the increasingly interesting things about the National Science Foundation that we're finding is that we don't want our influence to stop at the walls of this institution. And Specifically, what that means is we're finding that so-called cyber infrastructure, the computer and information structure that's being developed across the world, is a way in which individuals can network in all kinds of diverse, complex, interesting ways. So increasingly, we are building programs that have to do with uh, cyber infrastructure, that have to do with uh, the digital age. And one of the interesting things would be the National Science Digital Library that's being uh, developed and the way in which that kind of activity can influence students and uh, educators in lots of different ways in terms of providing content and ideas. Oh, that's great. I was just at the conference for the National Science Digital Library, so that's good to hear that you're just as excited about it as we are. While we're talking about NSF, one of the things I'd really like to know is, in the future, what are we going to expect from NSF as far as exciting things, not just simply from a scientific standpoint, but just just cool things. You'll expect to see NSF 
always try to be on the leading edge in terms of where the very best science is being done and also the very best ways in which to be doing that science. That will really be the challenge for this institution as we go forward from here. Will it be an institution that continues to adapt itself to the community of researchers and the kinds of questions that are being asked in a way that it can be flexible, can be open both in terms of administration as well as the science questions in order to allow the researchers in the United States and indeed around the world to benefit from the kinds of investments that can be made by this institution to move the science forward. The other thing that's interesting with what you're doing is you're actually a working scientist. What we'd call probably an ecologist would fit best for you. And now you're at Washington, D.C., and you're in this institution. You haven't given up your science side either. And so I have a couple questions, and you can kind of answer them however you want. One is, how do you end up at NSF? And the second thing is, how do you balance that? That's pretty impressive. So you're right. My research area is ecology and evolutionary biology. I wound up at NSF starting as an individual who applied to the institution for research grants, then uh, served as a reviewer, served on research panels here to judge awards, then was asked to come here and interview for a position called program director, and I did that and acquired that position, and in 1985-86 was program director here in a program at that time called Population Biology and Physiological Ecology. So that was 20 years ago, and at that point, the National Science Foundation was downtown, so it was right across from the White House is where we were, which is a terrific location. Uh, we were there with the Secret Service in that same building at that time. <laughs> well, I, I hope they didn't need to have the Secret Service around just to take care of you. Uh, no. We would just ride the elevator together. I finished uh, that position here at NSF, which was a so-called rotating position, so I was here only for a year. At that point, went back to Arizona State, continued my research. I was continuing my research while I was here at, in the 85-86 stint as well, but worked at ASU as an investigator, was also chair of the Department of Zoology, then the Department of Biology. During that time period also, the former director of the biological sciences here asked me to come and serve on what's called the Advisory Committee for the Biological Sciences, the National Advisory Committee. And I did that and chaired that committee, and I also chaired another committee in environmental research and education here. Finally, I was asked if I would be willing to have my CV put forward for the position of Assistant Director of Biological Sciences in about two and a half years ago. I was asked to assume that position. I started about two years ago. Now, as an assistant director, it sounds like you're a couple levels down, but actually you're not really that far down from the director, right? Right. It's the director of the National Science Foundation. He has an assistant director, deputy director, and uh, then we have the assistant directors right underneath the director. So each of us is responsible for a different area of research. I have biological sciences, and then I have colleagues have social behavioral and economic sciences, mathematics and physical sciences, computer and information sciences, geological sciences, engineering, and education. We actually will have to do a whole other program with you on your research because there's so much to talk about. I do want to mention the animal that you work with, at least one of them, and that's the salamander. We have a really interesting uh, article on Ask a Biologist about your research, and it says, uh, he ain't tasty, he's my brother. 
Can you talk just a little bit about that? Because it goes into cannibalism even. Right. So the research animal that we've used very, very successfully for 30-plus years is the salamander, and more specifically the tiger salamander, Imbistema tigrinum. It has a wonderfully complex life cycle where it starts as an egg, hatches into a larval salamander, it's called, that lives in an aquatic environment, has big, bushy external gills and tail fins. It looks like a fish to the common observer, except that there are these big, bushy external gills and they're not covered over as in fish. And uh, those animals will grow up, and depending upon the environment and their genetics, some of them can actually develop broad heads and enlarged teeth, and they will begin to eat other salamanders. So there's your reference to the idea of, of them being cannibals. That will go on for either a very short summer season, or if the pond is permanent, they can actually stay in the pond and continue to just increase in size. They'll return the external gills and become mature adults within the pond, or they'll transform, they'll metamorphose is the term. They'll lose the gills, they'll lose their fin, and they'll walk away and live under a rock or some logs or in a mammal burrow for a year or two. Then they'll come back to the pond and breed. And remember, there are already these other possible life stages that are in the pond that are mature gilled forms. So you have this complex life cycle in which you can have adults that are very, very different in appearance, and you can have larvae that are very, very different in appearance, but also in terms of the way in which they function in the environment. So it's a great uh, system for exploring everything from genetics, gene-environment interactions, ecology, evolutionary biology, and most recently, host-pathogen interactions. One of the things I forgot to mention is that actually as a kid playing around in the little ponds around my neighborhood, I found what was a salamander. But we called them mud puppies at the time. And I brought it home and put it in a terrarium, and I was trying to feed it, and all it did is get skinnier and skinnier. So finally I had to take it back to the pond because it turns out that I'm not a really good caretaker of these salamanders. Right. So they, of course, have their own behaviors, their own habits. Uh, their own requirements as far as feeding is concerned. And as a young person, you really have to understand those requirements, what they are, in order to keep the animal uh, healthy and happy. But I would also, in this day and age, caution young people that when they bring an organism home, they are not only responsible for it, but they really should think twice about taking it back to the natural habitat because we now understand that these organisms can acquire pathogens, and taking it back to the natural habitat may be the very, very worst thing to do because it can bring disease back into that system that would infect other organisms in the environment, and uh, that would not be a good thing to do. So the moral of that is catch and release right at the time? (laughs) Catch and release right at the time. Very good. You mentioned basic research, and in a previous program, we actually talked about basic research versus applied research. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between basic and applied. The distinction is one that I don't don't want to push too much in that there is certainly a real integration between what counts as basic research and what counts as applied research in any particular time. But to put a fine point on what would really count as basic research is the kind of activity that, at the end of it, really does begin to change what our theoretical and conceptual understanding would be of any particular area of science. If someone's doing that sort of work, then you can say 
that it's fundamental, it is, it is basic, that's the other word that we've been using, in a way that when they're finished, everybody else around can now understand a basic concept has been changed, the basic theoretical framework has been changed, and that should be applicable then as you go forward from that point. We're talking, as you said, basic science, and that's really, in a nutshell, almost creating a library that we can work with over time, and we keep learning, and what we learn sometimes we find out is wrong, and we find out there's another answer, right? That's right. No, that's right. It keeps changing all the time in terms of the kinds of information that's available, the quality of the information, the way in which the information is being interpreted, the way in which we even conceive of the problem, and that's a fundamental piece of what we're trying to support as far as the National Science Foundation is concerned. Right. A lot of kids think there's a book on the shelf with all the answers. We don't have all the answers. No, we don't have nearly all the answers. No, that's the exciting thing about it is that the answers are always changing. We're always looking for that new edge, that new idea, and support the investigators who want to pursue it for a while, take a look at it, see if there really is something to it, and see what might grow out of it. Right. Keeping an open mind in science is just as important as anywhere else. Open mind is absolutely critical in science. When I walked into your office, and actually into the NSF building, I was rather impressed. When I got up on the sixth floor, I come out and I'm greeted with all these beautiful photographic images. Lots of art, and I walked into your office area, and there's lots of art as well. And I I love seeing that because we have a tendency to separate art and science, and it's really not fair because both disciplines are very creative. And both of them take a certain amount of intellectual work. You know, it's not fair to make science into something dull and boring, and you have to be really, really smart to do it. I think you need to be dedicated and really focused and really excited about it, and then say that art is fun. What is your take on art and science? You're absolutely right. They're both creative activities. They demand a level of scholarship and discipline. They depend on having great intellectual rigor when it comes to exactly what you want to be doing in terms of the exploration of the human condition, whether it has to do with science or it has to do with art. And so it's at that place where they both intersect. It's sort of exploring what we are as a species, uh, what we're doing on this planet, and what the future is going to look like. And science and art does that in different kinds of ways. I like to ask three questions every guest I have. Um, These are common ones. The first one is, when did you first know you were going to be a biologist or a scientist? In other words, was there a spark that you can remember or a point in time that really triggers where you remember, wow, I'm going to be a biologist? Yes. Uh, I was interested in biological kinds of things from a very, very early age, meaning grammar school. That was refined in high school where I learned that one could in fact, become a teacher of biology, and that was really, really appealing to me. That was refined further when I went to college and learned that one could not only teach biology but could be involved in research in biology. And it was really in my second year in college where I sat down and forced myself to make a decision between a career in history, actually, American history, or the biological sciences, within the biological sciences, whether it would be medicine or something else. And the thing that triggered a real transition was an opportunity between my sophomore year in college and my junior year in college to participate in a field course in marine ecology and evolution and uh, to have an opportunity to do some research. And that was uh, absolutely the transition point. 
Okay, now we've heard how you got into the world of biology. And you certainly have done both the academic side and the administrative side. And I'm going to take it all away. You can't be a biologist. You can't be a scientist. If you had a chance to do a different career or you were forced into another career, what would you do? I'd be a historian. Okay, what kind of history do you like? Uh, The history of ideas. How ideas come to emerge within a society or within subsets of a society what causes them to take hold, what causes some ideas to be successful and others uh, not, and how do those ideas uh, shape the lives and the world of the individuals around them? How do they shape the institutions of the individuals who uh, have these particular ideas? So you're not actually taking one period of time. There are historians that will take 18th century history, or they might go back into the Romantic period or something. So you like all of it. You just want to know what made things change at that point. Exactly. That's right. No, it's not a particular period. It is definitely the history of ideas from ancient history up to the modern day. Okay. One last question. What advice do you have for someone, young scientist, or someone that maybe they decided, you know, I want a career in science? What's your advice? To be open to opportunities. That really is the key in the moment as far as uh, being a successful scientist is concerned. The fields are changing so rapidly that you have to develop a basic set of interests, but then be willing to be adventurous, be willing to explore any kind of opportunity that comes along, see what you will be able to do with that opportunity, and then move on to others as they present themselves. You mentioned the word explore, and actually another thing that comes up on this program is travel. Uh, A lot of people like to travel and would like to have a a job that actually does that sort of thing. So they look for these careers that would have the potential of travel. I would say you have a lot of travel. I do a lot of traveling. That's right. I've been to um, all of the United States except for Maine. I still have Maine to get to for whatever reasons. It still has eluded me. I've been to all seven continents at this point in terms of travel and all the way to the South Pole. And so it is a career that has enabled me to see just terrific places in China, Japan, uh, Antarctica, New Zealand, Australia, Europe, Africa, Asia. It's just been wonderful in terms of uh, travel. Now, how does an aquatic ecologist end up going to the South Pole? Well, as part of being here as a senior manager at the National Science Foundation, I'm responsible not only for participating in uh, policy decisions relative to the biological sciences, in fact, being the last stop for policy decisions relative to the biological sciences, except insofar as I'm consulting with the director and deputy on policy decisions in biology, but they expect me to also be able to advise them relative to activities within the other areas of NSF, math and physical sciences, engineering, and so on. And at the South Pole, NSF has significant investments in math and physical sciences as well as engineering, but also in the biological sciences. We support a long-term ecological research site uh, in Antarctica, and in fact, we support two of them. And uh, part of my responsibility is oversight for those activities, but also being able to understand the science that's being done at the South Pole in a way that I'm then able to advise the director and deputy and my colleagues, other assistant directors, in terms of that research. And so being able to see it firsthand 
makes an immense difference in the amount of judgment you can bring to the multi-million dollar investments that are made as far as that sort of research is concerned. So in essence, you are a student often, right? Uh, I find myself a student for my entire life. All right, so we've had all this travel. Can you pick one of your favorite spots and tell us why? Probably the, the most exciting and most interesting trip that I've taken lately was to China. It was just an absolutely fascinating country to visit right now. And the reason is that it is so obvious that it is a country in transition. It is a country that in which you can see farms and fields being worked in absolutely traditional ways, and yet you can come into their cities like uh, Beijing and Shanghai and see the most modern of skyscrapers. My really favorite spot was when we uh, flew into a, uh, a city called Kunming, and then we drove south from there for several hours towards uh, Laos and Myanmar into the Old World Tropical Forest in that part of the world. It really was uh, the kind of trip that's a, a National Geographic newsreel, just as you're going along with the rice paddies and the tea plantations and the uh, water buffalo just working the fields. It was just a terrific sort of experience moving along the Mekong River in that part of China, and it was uh, just terrific. How about uh, just Washington, D.C. in general? Do you like the, the city? Do you like the activity? Do you like the energy? I grew up in New York City, and Washington, D.C. is another global city. It really is. There, is. there are some global cities, New York City, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Beijing, Shanghai. When you're in these cities, there really is an energy. London's another great example. Cape Town, there is an energy that goes along with those cities as a result of being in them. And Washington is just a place that's like that, where you walk along the street and you hear multiple languages. You go into restaurants that have a variety of different kinds of ethnic foods. You go to bookstores that have different kinds of literatures, very different kinds of literatures. It really is energizing on a day-to-day -day basis. It's kind of interesting because I've seen a lot of pictures of you, and you're out in the woods with your blue jeans and maybe even waders, and other times here you are, tie and shirt. You actually have two worlds you like to go into. I have two, I have actually even more than that, different kinds of worlds that I walk through at different times, and that also is very stimulating for me. It's one of the things that I had hoped would be able to come out of a career as I moved ahead from a very early point, that is it would be diverse and it would be engaging. I didn't have all the particulars worked out, but uh, the career I've chosen and have been able to get into has been absolutely wonderful in terms of its stimulating. You're also a bit of a sports fan, aren't you? I am a sports fan. Okay, now fess up. What's the favorite football team? Oh, the favorite football team, well, would be the Sun Devils. Oh, oh, he's pandering here. No, 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 no. What, what's your alma mater? What's your favorite college football? A college football team? Oh, it would be the University of Michigan. <laughs> of course, the Wolverines, yes. And, and we won't go into baseball because this wasn't a good year for baseball. Well, you know, I grew up rooting for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and they still are my favorite team, even though they no longer exist. And I couldn't quite transfer all my allegiances to the, to the Los Angeles Dodgers, so I switched my allegiance at that point to the New York Mets, and they have many of the qualities of the Brooklyn Dodgers <laughs> that they've exhibited over the years, but we won't even go there. Yes, well, we won't go there. 
I want to thank you for sitting down with us. I know you're really, really busy, and uh, being able to sit down, I have to say, it is a beautiful office, and taking a little time out is great. Happy to do it. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Dr. James Collins, the Assistant Director for the Directorate of the Biological Division of NSF. He's also a faculty member in the ASU School of Life Sciences. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the grassroots studio housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is an academic division of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. But for today's show, we're in Washington, D.C., and remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can just Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology. <laughs>